we are continuing our study on Hebrews called Jesus, the mediator of a new Testament or a new covenant. As always, when we say new Testament, we're talking about the blood of Christ. We're talking about the cross of Christ. We're never talking about the books of the Bible. We're never talking about the table of contents. We're always talking about what Jesus did on the cross. When we say old covenant or old Testament, we're referring to the law of Moses that started in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. So when we say old or new Testament, I mean, old Testament or old covenant, we are never talking about books of the Bible, nor are we talking about the table of contents. So this is teaching number 46, and it's called Do Not Forsake the Assembling of Yourselves Together. This is part one, and this is probably one of the most taken out of context verses in the Bible. It's one of the few verses that most people know out of Hebrews. It's probably the most quoted verse out of Hebrews. More than likely, people quoting this verse have no idea where it is in the book of Hebrews. They just know that there's a verse in the Bible that says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. If they know where it is, many don't know the historical context of Hebrews that was happening in AD 65. And so that's what we want to look at. We want to understand this verse, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together in its historical context. It comes out of Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, and it says, let us consider how to motivate one another to love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to set the background for this verse. And then next week, we're going to move further into the verse. But in order for us to understand not forsaking our own assembling together, if we don't understand the background of this verse, then this verse really is going to be taken out of context. Most people, when they use it, most pastors and Christians, they teach that it means you need to make sure you stay in church. You need to make sure you're plugged into a small group or to a Sunday school class. Don't forsake going to church. Don't forsake being in a small group. And that's not the context at all. When we get to the end of this historical background that we're going to look at, the context is going to open up really wide for us. And this verse is going to make a lot of sense. We're going to understand it within its historical context. The context of this, not forsaking our own assembling together, as we read down in Hebrews chapter 10, we come to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. It says this, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that yourselves had better and lasting possessions. This is written to people in, in about AD 65. Once we see the historical background of these verses, Hebrews 10, 32 through 34 is going to make a lot of sense. So let's begin looking at this verse by looking at the word light. Hebrews 10.32 says, remember those earlier days. What days is the writer of Hebrews referring to there? We're going to look at that. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. What's the writer of Hebrews mean when he says receive the light? Light means that if somebody's in the darkness, it means they don't have the knowledge about something that's happening. They don't have the information that they need if they're in the darkness. But if they're in the light, they have the information they need. They have the revelation that they need. Now, the light here is the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. You had received the light. You were brought into full knowledge of Jesus as the Son of God, Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus as the Son of Man, Hebrews chapter 2. Son of God, Jesus is 100% God. Son of Man, He's 100% man. Those are titles for the Messiah or the Christ. He was going to be the Son of God, meaning 100% God, and the Son of Man, meaning 100% man. As God and as human, he would bring about this New Testament of grace. 
prior to AD 65, the audience that the writer of Hebrews is writing to had earlier days where they had received the light of the truth about Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus is referred to as the light in the Jewish scriptures, in the book of John, and in some of the other books we're going to look at as well. So we really want to dive in pretty deep to this word light so we can understand the light that this Jewish audience had received in the early days. Isaiah 9-2 says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So the Bible talks about in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah talks about a coming great light. A light has dawned, meaning that one is coming into the world who's going to bring the knowledge of God, who's going to bring the knowledge of meaning to life and purpose to life and what life is, is all about. A Messiah is coming, a Christ is coming into the world to bring the knowledge of what life is all about. A great light, a light has dawned. Now, Matthew, of course, was an eyewitness of Jesus. And he writes about Jesus coming as the light. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. It says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, John the Baptist, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun, and Nephtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Now, this is where Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, 2. And Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 4, land of Zebulun and land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in the darkness have seen a great light. That great light is Jesus. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So Jesus came to bring light to those in the darkness and life to those who are dead, spiritually disconnected from God. We've seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, another set of verses in Isaiah is Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. They tell of this light that's coming into the world. Matthew also quotes parts of these verses, Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. Matthew quotes parts of these verses in Matthew chapter 12, 17 through 21. But we're going to read Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, that's the Messiah, that's the Christ, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Jesus is going to do this one day. Jesus hasn't brought justice to the nations yet. That's coming when he rules and reigns as king. Christ means Savior King. Jesus came as Savior the first time, and he's coming as King the second time. Jesus coming as King to establish a kingdom of peace on earth, and justice will come to the earth to the nations. So, Isaiah 42, 1 through 7, here's my servant, that's the Messiah, the Christ, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And this is the part that Matthew quotes in Matthew 12. He, the Messiah, the Christ, will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's the grace of Jesus to the people who are hurting. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. That hasn't happened yet. People are crying out for justice all over the earth. Jesus is going to come back and establish justice on earth. In his teachings, the islands, that's the nations of the world, will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs forth from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. 
I, the Lord, have called you the Messiah, the Christ in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people. That's the Jewish people. And a light for the Gentiles. Now, Luke writes about this verse in Luke chapter 2. Luke interviewed the eyewitnesses of Jesus. When we read the book of Luke, the book of Acts, there is amazing detail in Luke and Acts. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke was a journalist. He captured all the details. He writes in Luke 2, 26 through 32 about a person named Simeon. And Simeon was an older man who understood Isaiah 42, 6. He understood Isaiah 49, 6. And the prayer of Simeon was that he would see the Messiah. He would actually see the Christ, the one that Isaiah said was coming and Jeremiah said was coming and Zechariah and Micah all said were coming. Simeon wanted to put his eyes on the light of the world. He got the opportunity to do so. Luke records this in Luke chapter 2, 26 through 32. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel or the time when Israel would be rescued and their greatness would be restored. Jesus is going to do that when he returns. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Christ, the one we just read about in Isaiah. Moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts, and with the parents, that's Joseph and Mary, brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. So Jesus lived during the days of the Old Testament of law. His death brought in the New Testament of grace. His parents followed the law of Moses. So we know that Matthew 1 is Old Testament, Matthew 2, Old Testament, Luke chapter 1 and 2. They're all Old Testament until Jesus dies on the cross. That's why the Old Testament is not about books, and the New Testament is not about books. It confuses us if we see them that way. So Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may dismiss your servant in peace. And now Simeon's about to quote, Isaiah 42, 6 and Isaiah 49, 6. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Look again in Isaiah 42, 6. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, 6. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So those are the two verses that Simeon quoted, that Luke recorded. Simeon understood that the light of the world was coming and he was going to be a light to the Gentiles. He was going to give the Gentiles a knowledge of what life was all about and who God really was. He was going to be a light to the Jews. Now, Remember, we're looking at Hebrews 10.32, which says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. The Jewish people had come to understand that Jesus was the light of the world. And that's what that light is referring to in Hebrews 10.32. So the light in the Bible is the coming of the Christ to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the one the Jewish prophets said would come. And then in John, Jesus appears as the light of the world. John chapter 1, verse 4 says, In him was life. Remember, he was coming to those living in the land of the shadow of death. So Jesus came to bring life to those living in the shadow of death and light to those living in the darkness. So John chapter 1, verse 4, In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike. John 8, 12, you can also see John chapter 9, verse 5. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah. When Isaiah says a light is coming into the world, Jesus is that light. He's the great light. He's the dawning light 
of Isaiah. So when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When people began to believe Jesus was the light of the world, they began to believe he was the Messiah, the Christ, the one Isaiah said was coming, the one Zechariah said was coming, the one Jeremiah said was coming, and Micah said was coming, the one whom the Jewish prophets said was coming, this Messiah, this Christ, Jesus is that Messiah. When the Jewish people began to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, persecution began to break out. So what we're going to look at is the mounting persecution by the Jewish leaders toward the Jewish people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. John chapter 7, verse 13 says, but no one, that's the Jewish people in context, would say anything publicly about Jesus being the Christ, the light of the world, for fear of the leaders. That's the Jewish leaders. They were afraid of the leaders because the leaders had rejected Jesus as the light. But some of the people were beginning to believe he is the light. In John chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, Jesus heals a blind man. And then the Jewish leaders question the parents about the healing of the blind man. Let's read about this in John 9, 20 through 22. The parents said, we know he is our son, and we know he was born blind. But how can he see now? Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, the light of the world of Isaiah, the one whom the prophet said was coming, the Jewish leaders said anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, would be put out of the synagogue. Now, being put out of the synagogue during the days of Jesus and after the time of Jesus, during the early days after the resurrection and the ascension, would be devastating to people. That's why they were afraid to speak out, because we're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. It would be devastating relationally. They would be rejected by family and friends, much like with modern day cults. When somebody leaves that cult, the cult rejects them. We'll have nothing to do with them. So it would be devastating relationally. It would be devastating socially. They would be insulted by those in the synagogue and the community. Remember in Matthew 5, 11, Peter also talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus talked about the insults falling upon those who believed he was the Christ. Matthew 5, 11 reads this way. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's referring to those who would have gotten kicked out of the synagogues, the insults that came at them, the lies that were told about them, all because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So to be kicked out of the synagogue would be devastating relationally, devastating socially, and it would be devastating financially. They could be released from their jobs, their source of income. It would be devastating materially. Their possessions could be taken away. We're going to see that a little bit later in Hebrews 10.34. And it would be devastating emotionally and physically for those who believed in Jesus as the Messiah and then being removed from the synagogue. Very humiliating, very devastating. That's why people were very hesitant to publicly acknowledge, acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. Maybe today we can relate to this in a way that I know of, of Bible teachers and pastors who get the gospel of grace. They understand the full gospel, but they're afraid to communicate it in their church. Because if they communicate it in their church, then they're afraid they're going to be removed as the pastor. And if they're removed as the pastor, then they're going to lose their job and their source of income. It's going to be humiliating for them. It's going to be difficult for them. 
So then rather than fully proclaim the gospel, they withhold it because they're afraid the elders are going to kick them out of the church or the deacons are going to kick them out. So they reserve communicating that message to their church. That's what was happening during the days of Jesus. People understood he was the Messiah, but if they admitted he was the Messiah, they would be removed from the synagogue and that would have devastating consequences. Jesus talked about this division that would erupt between people and families based upon people's views of Jesus. Luke 12, 51 through 53, Jesus says this, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. One day he will come and bring peace on earth, but as the first coming brought division. Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Over Jesus, is he the Messiah or not? The Christ or not? Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he's describing the division that takes place in families when someone during this time would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. This happens today in families. As people come to understand grace, it divides people. It divides people in small groups. It divides people in churches. It creates conflict when people begin to see the fullness of the gospel. And when they see the fullness of the gospel and they share the fullness of the gospel within their church, within their small group, within their families, what the gospel does is it brings division between those who see it and those who reject it. Even though those who reject it are saved by the gospel, the irony is that the gospel that saves them They reject a lot of what the gospel is about. So we're looking at the persecution by Jewish leaders toward those believing Jesus was the Christ, the light of the world. We're looking at the word light in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. The Jewish audience had received the light. They had come to the knowledge of Jesus as the Messiah. Let's continue to look in the book of John. In John chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, Jesus claims he is the light of the world. Says, then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. That's the light of Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 46. The great light, the dawning light. He is saying, I am that light. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark, that's the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, does not know where they are going. Believe in the light, that's Jesus as the Messiah, while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light, the offspring of the Messiah. John 12, 42 says this, Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. John chapter 12, verse 46, I have come into the world, Jesus said, as a light, so that no one who believes in me as the Messiah, as the Christ, as foretold by the Jewish scriptures, so no one who believes in me should stay in darkness or unbelief. Darkness here is unbelief in Jesus as the Messiah, unbelief in Jesus as the Christ. Jesus talked about the persecution that would come after his ascension, and he talks about it in John 15, 20 through 25, and John 16, 1 through 4. Let's read what Jesus says about the persecution coming, and and we see this persecution that Jesus is about to talk about in John 15, 20 through 25 and 16, one through four. The fulfillment of that happens in the book of Acts. So everything he's talking about in John 15, 20 through 25 and 16, one through four, he's foreshadowing the persecution that took place in the book of Acts. John 15, 20 through 25 says, if they, that's the Jewish leaders, persecuted me, 
can read about that in Mark 11, 18, John 5, 16 through 18, John 7, 1, John 7, 19, John 10, 33, and John 19, 7. If they, the Jewish leaders, persecuted me, they will persecute you also. can read about that in Matthew 10, 17 through 21. You there specifically being the disciples that he was talking to. But he later says it's, it's coming to all those who believe. If they obeyed my teaching, the teaching of Jesus was that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. That, that's the teaching he's referring to. If they obeyed, if they believed what I said about myself being the Messiah, if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also, that Jesus is the Christ. Yours being the disciples, as you teach others about Jesus being the Christ, if they believed I was the Messiah when I said it, they're going to still believe that when you communicate that I'm the Messiah, they will also obey yours, your teaching. You can look at that in Acts 5.42, when the disciples were teaching Jesus was the Christ. They will treat you this way, persecution, because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So the Jewish leaders claim to know God as Father. They claim to know God, but they deny Jesus as the Messiah. And that's what he's referring to here. Jesus would tell them, if you don't accept me as the Messiah, then you don't know my Father. Though you claim to know him, you don't know him if you reject me. Those who persecute you will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. That's the Father. If I had not come and spoken to them, talking about the Jewish people, they would not be guilty of sin, unbelief in me as the Messiah in context. But now they have no excuse for their sin. They have no excuse for rejecting me as the Messiah because I've revealed to them that I am the Messiah. My miracles confirm that I am the Messiah. Let's keep reading in John 15. Whoever hates me, that's the Jewish leaders of the time, hates my father as well, even though they claim to know God the Father. Jesus said, no, you don't know God the Father. You are of your father, the devil. That's John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, the works that no one else did, he's talking about his miracles. His miracles confirmed that he was the Messiah. His miracles authenticated his identity as the Messiah. But remember what the Jewish leaders said, that Jesus, he's doing the miracles empowered by Satan. That was the sin of blasphemy, the unpardonable sin of rejecting Jesus as the Christ and saying that his miracles were done by Satan. That was the unpardonable sin that the Jewish leaders committed during that time. All right. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, that's the miracles confirming Jesus was the Christ, then they would not be guilty of sin. So Jesus did the miracles in the presence of the Jewish people, and many of the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus as the Messiah. That's the sin of unbelief. Jesus is saying they wouldn't be guilty of the sin of unbelief if I had not done the miracles right before their very eyes. But they saw with their eyes the miracles that I did, and they still rejected me as the Messiah. They're guilty of unbelief in me, sin. As it is, they, the Jewish leaders, have seen Jesus as the Messiah and the miracles that he did. As it is, they have seen and yet have hated both me and my father. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus. They plotted against him. They began planning behind his back and in the darkness and in secret rooms of what can we do to get some claims against him that will make him guilty that ultimately we can hand him over to the Romans and he will be crucified. How can we get rid of this false Messiah? They hated Jesus with a passion. They also hated the believers of Jesus as well. As it is, they have seen and they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill 
what was written in there, the Jewish leaders' law, the law of Moses, they, the Jewish leaders, hated me without reason. Psalm 35, 19 and Psalm 69, 4 is quoted by Jesus, saying that these verses talk about the Jewish leaders who rejected Jesus. Whether we're reading the book of Hebrews or whether we're reading the book of John or the book of Luke or the book of Acts, historical context is the foundation for understanding the Bible. It is paramount. It is vital. It is essential to understand historical context. John chapter 15 is all about Jesus telling the disciples that persecution is coming. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. This is where the phrase abiding in Christ comes from. And I have written about it on my website, gracereach.org. I have an article called, What Does It Mean to Abide in Christ? It's nothing what is taught in the majority of Christianity and mainline Christianity. Typically, what is taught about abiding in Christ is the way you abide in Christ is have a quiet time every day, read your Bible every day, pray every day. You're abiding in Christ. That's not what that's about at all in John chapter 15. To abide in Christ is to believe that he's the Messiah. It's to believe that he's the Christ. It's to not allow the Jewish leaders to convince you he's not the Messiah, that he's not the Christ, and turn away from him as Messiah. Abiding in Christ is belief. It's trusting. It's believing he's the Messiah. That's how John uses it in 1 John, the exact same way. So let's continue in John 16, 1 through 4. There are no chapters and verses in the original manuscripts of the Bible. So this is Jesus just talking. So pretend John 16, 1 through 4 isn't even there. And it's just a continuation of what Jesus is talking about. He says, all this I have told you, the disciples, about the Jewish leaders, that they will hate you because they hated me. All this I have told you so that you, that's the disciples that he's talking to, all this I have told you about the persecution that's coming, about the hatred they'll have for you after I'm gone, and other believers, so that you will not fall away. You will believe that I'm the Messiah. You will abide in me as the Christ not falling away, meaning you're going to abide in me as the Christ when persecution comes. You're not going to fall away from me as Messiah. You're not going to reject me as the Messiah. You're going to believe in me as the Christ, the light of the world. They, Jesus says, referring to the Jewish leaders, will put you out of the synagogue. So we see people being put out of the synagogue prior to the death of Jesus, and then we're going to look in the book of Acts, how people were put out of the synagogue after the ascension of Jesus. So when Jesus says here, they will put you out of the synagogue, he's referring to everything that took place in the book of Acts. That's the persecution that the book of Hebrews is referring to in the early days of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. In the early days, when you received the light, in the early days, when the truth of the Messiah came to you through the 12 or through the eleven. And you, you heard the truth about Jesus being the light of the world. That's the early days that Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 is referring to. This is the same Jesus is referring to. Whereas Hebrews 10, 32 looks back, John 16, 1 through 4 is looking into the future of the persecution of Acts. Hebrews 10 looks backwards into the persecution of Acts. So they, the Jewish leaders, will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. If you just want to write the Apostle Paul above that verse, that's what it's referring to. Saul was persecuting believers, dragging them out of the synagogue, having some killed, thinking he was serving God by putting down this false movement of people believing Jesus is the Christ, the light of the world. They, the Jewish leaders, will do such things, persecution, drag you out of the synagogues, kill you, because they have not known the Father or me. He says, I have told you this about the persecution to come, being dragged out of the synagogue, being killed, so that when their time comes, this time of persecution, you will remember that I warned you about them. 
this persecution and those who are bringing forth the persecution, dragging people out of the synagogue, having them in prison, having them beat, and some even put to death. So we see this persecution that Jesus was referring to in John 15 and 16 on full display in the book of Acts. Let's look at this as John 15 and 16 is fulfilled. Let's look at the fulfillment of John 15 and 16 in the book of Acts. Peter and John are arrested and flogged in Acts 4, 1 through 17. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name do you do this? Look at Acts 5, 17 through 18. Then the high priest, all the associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and they put them in public jail. Acts 5, 27 through 42, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. This is the fulfillment of John 15 and 16. What Jesus told them would happen in John 15 and 16, we're reading about the fulfillment of that in Acts. So Acts 5, 27 through 42, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. That's the governing body of Israel politically, socially, and spiritually. They were brought before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We have given you strict orders not to teach in the name, meaning the name of Jesus. He said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, meaning they were saying the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus as the Christ and had him crucified. They were furious, and they wanted to put them to death. They called the apostles in and had them flogged and told them not to speak of the name of Jesus, yet they did not stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They're abiding in Christ here. They're, con- they're believing Jesus is the Messiah. They're communicating the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. This is what abide means in John chapter 15. We see Stephen is stoned to death in Acts chapter 6 verse 12, Acts 7 57 through 58. says, they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Stephen gives a speech. After the end of the speech, it says, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They rushed him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, and Saul approved of their killing him. That goes back to John chapter 15 and 16. Jesus said, you will be killed. And people think there will be doing a service to God. We see this happening in Acts. We see in Acts 8, 1 through 2, believers are pursued, beaten, and imprisoned. It says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned him deeply. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen in John 15 and 16. Acts 9, 1 through 2. Meanwhile, Saul, that's Paul, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's people. Remember, that's what Jesus said would happen. They will kill you. Saul, or Paul, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Remember what Jesus said? They will drag you out of the synagogues, and they will kill you. This is happening. What Jesus said in John 15 and 16 is happening in Acts. So Saul or Paul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, believing Jesus was the Christ, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. We have Paul's testimony in Acts 27, 19 through 20, after Jesus appears to Paul. 
Lord, I, Paul, replied. This is when Jesus appeared to Paul. Paul says to Jesus, Lord, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And you see how this is the fulfillment of of John 15 and 16. Jesus said people will be drugged out of synagogues. Paul is highlighted in the scriptures as one of those who did this. I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And now we see James in Acts 12, 1 through 5. James is the brother of John, John who wrote the book of John. We see James is killed by Herod. And we see that this pleased the Jews. Now, James and John were the brothers who wanted to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. That's Mark 10, 35 through 45. James and John, it was their mother who came and requested of Jesus that they sit at the left and right hand of Jesus. That's Matthew 20, 20 through 21. And now we see in Acts 12, 1 through 5, James is put to death by Herod. Acts 12, 1 through 5, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, that's the persecution that Jesus talked about in John 15 and 16. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Peter was thrown in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So Paul becomes a believer. He goes out on a missionary journey. We see the persecution begin to happen against Paul. We see in Acts 13, 49 through 50, Paul's declaring the gospel of grace. Says the word of the Lord, that's belief in Jesus as the Messiah. That's belief in his resurrection in context. That's receiving by faith forgiveness. It's justification by faith. It's all apart from the law. That's what the word of the Lord is. A lot of people, when they see the word of the Lord in the Bible, they think the Bible. Well, the Bible wasn't written during this time, so it can't mean the Bible. The context of the phrase, the word of God or the word of the Lord, will tell you what the word was. For example, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Well, the Bible didn't come to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah for him to go to Nineveh. Then the word came a second time for him to go to Nineveh. So the context of the phrase, the word of the Lord or the word of God, will always tell you what that specific word was to that specific audience. So the specific word of the Lord in Acts 13, 49 through 50 is the belief that Jesus is the Christ. It's the belief in his crucifixion. It's the belief in his resurrection. And it's the belief that a person is justified by faith apart from the law and receives forgiveness by faith. That's the context. So the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. That's the region of Galatia. That's where the Galatian churches comes from that Paul writes about or writes to, a letter to in Galatians. But the Jewish leaders, here they go again, they persecuted Jesus during his lifetime. And Jesus said, they're going to continue to persecute believers in me after I'm gone. We see this happening. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. That's the city of Pisidian Antioch in Galatia. The Jewish leaders, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region, along with the women of high standing and the men of leading men of the city. They persecuted Paul, expelled him from the Galatian area or Pisidian Antioch, and they continued to go into Galatia. Acts 14, 1 through 5, Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium. That's a Galatian city. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed in Jesus as the Messiah and that righteousness comes by faith, not by the law. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And eventually they mistreated Paul and Barnabas and they wanted to stone them. We see that in Acts 14. 
We see in Acts 14, 19 through 20, that Paul is stoned and he's left for dead. It says they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. We see in Acts 17, 5 through 8, Jason and other believers were dragged into the court in Thessalonica. Acts 17, 5 through 8 says this, but the other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. I mean, these, these Jewish leaders, these were some mean people leading the synagogues. These synagogue leaders were mean. These Jewish leaders were not nice people. They're rounding up bad characters from the marketplace. They form a mob and started a riot in the city. That's Thessalonica. They rushed to Jason's house. This is the mob that the Jews got going here. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here to our city. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. So now they're persecuting Jason for welcoming Paul and Silas. Acts 17, 13, Paul continues to be persecuted in Berea. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, again, that's that's not talking about the Bible. It's talking about the gospel of grace. That's the word of God in Acts. It is the good news of the gospel of grace. Justification by faith, righteousness by faith. We receive forgiveness by faith. That's the word of of God in the book of Acts. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up against Paul. Persecution and suffering by the believers of Thessalonica is talked about in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 15. Paul writes, you suffered from your own people the same things those churches referring to the churches in Acts, or those are the believers in Acts, suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They, the Jewish leaders, displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles about the gospel of grace. When we read Paul's letters, if a person hasn't been taught that these letters come from the book of Acts, and they're inspired from the book of Acts, and they historically fit into the book of Acts. These are not just random letters written, but they come from the book of Acts. And if we can place these books into the time period of the book of Acts, then these books begin to come to life for us as well. Sadly, most believers have never been taught how do you read Paul's letters. And the way you read them is by finding in the book of Acts where Paul went into Ephesus, where he went into Philippi, where he went into Thessalonica. And these letters flow from those times that he was there. So we see this hostility. We see this persecution breaking out. Look in Acts 18, 1 through 7. The Jews are ordered out of Rome, and then Paul is opposed, abused, and attacked in Corinth. Acts 18, 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. That was persecution against the Jewish people in Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own head. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. We see Paul's Jewishness coming out in this statement, your blood be on your own heads. It's right out of Ezekiel. So Paul was very, very Jewish. And we see that in that statement. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. That's an amazing statement right there. The leader of the synagogue believed in Jesus as the Messiah. That's an amazing statement. As his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. 
Let's read down a little bit. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. We see that the crowd turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him. I mean, these Jewish people were, we saw what they did to Jesus. This persecution is growing and it's mounting against a wider group of people for believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And now we know if I'm in the synagogue, if I admit that I believe Jesus is the Messiah, what's going to happen to me? I mean, there was real fear there for their lives for believing that Jesus was the Christ. Acts 19, 8 through 10. Paul entered the synagogue in Ephesus and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. That's the coming rule and reign of Christ on earth that's fulfilled in Ephesians. But some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe, and they publicly maligned the way. Acts 20, 28 through 29, believers will be deceived by religious leaders opposing grace. Paul writes about this. He calls them savage wolves, these religious leaders, these Jewish leaders. They're going to try to deceive you and get you away from the gospel of grace. He calls them savage wolves who will come in among you and not spare the flock. Paul is seized in Jerusalem. That's Acts 21, 27 through 31. It says they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, seizing Paul. They were trying to kill Paul. Acts 22, 30, Paul was being accused by the Jews. He was taken before the Sanhedrin. And then we find out in Acts 23, 12 through 15, that says the next morning, Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Now, with that understanding of the persecution that started when Jesus identified himself publicly to Israel as the light of the world, the Messiah, it continued during the life of Jesus. Jesus prophesied about it directly before his death, that persecution would continue. People would be dragged out of synagogues. They would lose a lot of things. It would be humiliating. It would be a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. When we read Hebrews 10, 32 through 39, read those verses with everything we just looked at in mind. Because the reader of Hebrews, those were some of the people in the book of Acts. So the writer of Hebrews is writing to people who were living during the time of the book of Acts who went through the persecution. So we come to Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. It says, remember those earlier days, all that we just read about in Acts. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the light of the world. When you endured in great conflict, full of suffering, we see all that happening in Acts. We just read about that. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. That's what Jesus said would happen, right, in John 15 and 16. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison. Remember, Paul was dragging people out, putting them in prison. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. That's when they were taken out of the synagogues. When you're taken out of the synagogues, your property might be taken as well because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So the reason that they were enduring such suffering is they were looking forward to the return of Jesus to establish his rule and reign on earth, the promised city that we looked at last week, this enduring city, this city that God would build, this new Jerusalem. That was the better and lasting possessions, the lasting possessions of the new covenant. And then Hebrews 35 says, so do not throw away your confidence. Now, this Greek word for confidence here is the same Greek word used for Peter and John in Acts 4.13 and Acts 4.29, when they boldly or confidently communicated that Jesus was the Christ. It's the exact same Greek word of 2 Corinthians 3.12, when Paul says, therefore, we are very bold in communicating the gospel or this new covenant of grace, do not throw away your boldness. Do not throw away your confidence 
as it relates to Jesus being the Christ, as it relates to this New Testament established in his blood. Don't be afraid to share that good news with people because you may be persecuted. We see Peter and John sharing that good news. They were persecuted. We see Paul sharing the good news. He was persecuted. They didn't throw away their boldness. They didn't throw away their confidence when persecution came. They continued to share that message. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded with what? Hebrews 10, 34, the better and lasting possessions. Confidence being belief in Jesus as the Christ. Don't throw away that confidence. Abide in Jesus as the Christ is what Jesus was referring to in John 15. So these believers and a mixed audience, some believers, some not believers, who the writer of Hebrews is writing to, verse 36 of Hebrews 10, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, the will of God is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Don't, don't turn away from Jesus and go back to Moses in the context, even in the face of persecution. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, believe in Jesus as the Christ, believe in his cross, believe in his resurrection, believe in the new covenant he's established. It says you will receive what he has promised, better and lasting possessions of Hebrews 10.34, the new earth that the Jewish people look forward to coming, the New Testament city of grace, the city that God designed and built, Hebrews 13.4, Hebrews 11.6, and Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. Now, at this point in Hebrews 10, 32 through 39, the writer focuses the attention of the Jewish believers who are being persecuted. He focuses their attention on Jesus and the return of Jesus, and he quotes from the Jewish scriptures in doing so. He quotes from Isaiah 26, 20, and Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. For, this is Hebrews 10, 37, for are because Isaiah 26, 20, and Habakkuk 2, 3 say this, For in just a little while, he, Jesus who is coming, will come and will not delay. So he focuses their attention on the return of Jesus during the times of persecution. He said, I know you're being persecuted. I know you're, you're being pushed to deny Jesus as the Christ, to deny he's the Messiah but he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Focus on his return. He's coming and he's not going to delay. And then in verse 38, the writer quotes Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. It's also quoted in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. It's, but my righteous one will live by faith. So Hebrews 10, 38 says, and, but my righteous one will live by faith. That's a quotation of Habakkuk 2, 4, and Romans 1, 16 through 17. This meaning, this faith here, meaning faith in Jesus as the Christ, faith that righteousness is received by grace. It's not achieved by the law. It's what Paul's referring to in Romans. It's what Paul's referring to in Galatians. It's the faith that the moment you believe, you're credited as righteous. It's the faith that trusts in Jesus, that receives forgiveness. That it's the faith that results in justification or being declared innocent by God and righteous before God. But my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Now, what does it mean to shrink back? It means to reject Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, Hebrews 1, and the Son of Man, Hebrews 2. It's to reject the work of Jesus on the cross, to reject his resurrection to reject the return of Jesus, to reject the New Testament of grace established in the blood of Jesus, and then to return for the Jewish people to the law of Moses. Remember, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, they're right at the edge of the promised land of grace. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, come on into the promised land of grace by faith. Remember the people of Israel, they got right up to the real promised land of Canaan, but in unbelief, they turned away. So the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are right at the edge of the promised land of grace. I mean, they're right there. They've been taught these truths. And he's saying, don't go back to Moses. Don't go back to Moses. Remember what the people were wanting to do in Exodus? They were wanting to go back to Egypt. 
God said, well, I'm not going to let you go back to Egypt, but you can wander around in the desert for 40 years. Why? Because they refused to believe. They refused to have faith and enter the promised land. And he's writing to people now, go back to Hebrews chapter three and four, the Jewish people at the edge of the promised land of grace, the land flowing with the blood of Christ, the land flowing with forgiveness of sins and righteousness by faith and eternal life. And all they have to do to enter into the promised land of grace is believe. That's the will of God. Believe, faith, trust. He says, but we, those who do believe, this is verse 39, do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. It's the picture of getting right up to the edge of the promised land of Canaan. Rather than going into the promised land of Canaan, the 10 spies influence the others to turn away from the promised land of Canaan because of fear. And as a result, they went into the desert where they were destroyed. The writer of Hebrews is saying there's a group of Jewish people. There are many Jewish people. You've been taken right up to the promised land of grace. You are at the front door of the promised land. You can enter in by faith. Everything that is yours through what Christ has done is just simply received by faith. And he's saying there are some, the believers, but then there are those who are going to shrink back, who are unbelievers. They will be destroyed in judgment. All right, that's what it's referring to, this judgment when... God's enemies are consumed. Those who reject Christ are consumed. You can read about that in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, Hebrews 12, 25 through 29, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, all describe the consuming judgment of God upon unbelievers. Now, let's continue reading real quick. We'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, Hebrews 10, 39 says, but we, that's believers in Jesus, do not belong to those who shrink back or are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So there's two groups here, right? There are those who shrink back in unbelief. They will be consumed in judgment, unbelief in Jesus as the Messiah. Group two, there are those who are saved through belief in Jesus as the Messiah. Faith. It goes back to the quotation of Habakkuk 2, 4. If you remember Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 through 28, talks about salvation and judgment. And this is what the writer is referring to in Hebrews 10. Just as people are destined to die once, this is Hebrews 9, 27 through 28, and after that to face judgment, this is being consumed in judgment. This is those who shrink back. These are the unbelievers. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, verse 28 of Hebrews 9 says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. That's those who have faith of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. So Jesus is coming to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him, that's those who have faith, but judgment to those who shrink back, that's the unbeliever. So there's intense persecution, there's intense pressure being put on the Jewish people to reject Jesus as the Messiah, to abandon faith in Jesus, to go back to the law of Moses, to reject the work of Christ on the cross. I mean, they've been brought right up to the edge of the promised land of grace. Pressure is mounting, persecution is mounting. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't shrink back. Step forward by faith into this promised land of grace because you know better things are coming. The better things of the new covenant are coming. The new heavens is coming. The new earth is coming. So there's great, great pressure being put on them basically to return to Judaism. So with this in mind, with everything we've just looked at, we can now begin to understand Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 through 25, which reads, let us consider how to motivate one another in the face of the persecution we're experiencing to love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together. I mean, these people needed each other during this time of persecution, tremendous persecution. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, there's strength in numbers. You're being persecuted. You're suffering. You, you got to come together. You got to find strength from each other during this time. And not only finding strength by assembling together, 
But in the face of all the evil that's being done, you be the group that's, that's loving people. You be the group that's doing good in the face of all the evil and the persecution that's happening. That's what we're going to dive into in our next study. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.